A lot of little speaker tricks, tricks I could teach you. Number one is when they play a cool video about kids, walk up right as it ends and people start clapping and you're like, oh, they're clapping for me, dude. I'm ready to go. Like, that's my intro clap. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Yeah. All right. Enough about me. Um, if you've ever thought about what it was like or can remember back the first time you showed up at, at this church or a church, it could be kind of weird. So I just always think like, what's it like the first time? So if you're here for the first time and, and you leave and somebody says, what happened there? I don't know what you're going to say. You know, there, there was some singing going on and then they all got in lines and went and got crackers. And then uh, the kids all left. We don't know where they went. It could, everybody was dressed nice at least, and they looked like everything was going great in their life. Well, let me make sure and, and at least clarify this. We are probably dressed nicer than we are most of the week, uh, but we are not perfect. And we've got a lot of things going on in our lives collectively, individually, that we're working through. So if you're here for the first time, or if you're here and you don't know Jesus, and you're just kicking the tires on this, I'm, I'm with what Jeremiah said. We're so glad that you're here. Because we can take it for granted, those of us that have been here a long time, how comfortable we can get in this setting. But it takes a lot of courage to show up here and, and worship and sing. And if you see something optimistic or hopeful in the people around you, it is this Jesus. It is not, it is not our own strength or our own talents or abilities. It's Jesus. And we want to just try to point you toward him. I uh, was yelling at some referees just yesterday, so I'm not the guy that if you're looking for the perfect source to represent him, I'm not it. But I do get to deliver the message today. My name is Sean, and I'm on staff here part-time. The A-team is over there in Mexico speaking Spanish, so I'm here, and I am pumped to be with you guys because I love summer and I love stories, and those two things are coming together at Cypress Creek. Summer is here, Fun time to hang out with kids, a little different schedule for us around our house and for many of you as well, getting outside a little bit more. And then this series that Pastor Jose has us on around parables, this idea of Jesus and the stories that he had and the way that they're an on-ramp for people who don't know him yet and they are encouragement and a challenge to those of us that are believers. Stories are powerful. I grew up with my dad, man, he would take me to Trinity, Texas, I don't know if any of you know where that is, small town, kind of outside of Huntsville, and uh, we'd go in the mornings, on Saturday mornings, to the cafe, and I'd sit around the table with these ranchers and these farmers and, and listen to them tell stories, and I wasn't allowed to speak, I was just there to listen, and uh, I soaked up those stories, man, they were, they were my heroes, and it was so cool. Stories are powerful, I hope that you have stories from your family and from your growing up years. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. Uh, the parable, the, the parable, the word actually in Greek means kind of throwing a story at them. That's what Jose described last week. That's the easy explanation. Jesus is throwing stories out at people because that's how we learn. Honestly, we can retain things that we hear in story form different than in other forms of learning. He actually says in Matthew chapter, I think it's 12 verses 12 and 13, um, he talks about why he uses parables, and he basically says that for those of us who listen to his teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. And then the very next line in the scripture says, that is why he taught him in parables. See, these stories allow us to understand at a deeper level. Well, last week, Jose, you know, he got to pick first because he went first. So he picked the best parable if you were here. It's a good one. 
there's the sheep and you know, a bunch of sheep and one of them gets lost. And the, and the parable teaches us about God. It says that God is a God who pursues us. And that is a good thing to hold on to, to remember that there is this loving God who not only created us, but he continues to pursue us no matter what. It also teaches us something about ourselves. We are amazingly valuable to God. We couldn't do, accomplish, or achieve anything that would make us more valuable than we already are because we are his. Uh, we have a daughter, Taylor, and her and uh, my son-in-law are amazing parents to our first little grandchild, but they are due in the next week or two with our second. And uh, this little girl will be born, God willing, and we will get to hold her. And I will tell you this, she will come out, and the first thing is she will have accumulated nothing. She will have no nothing, no clothes, no accomplishments. That's how we determine value in our culture, though, right? How much have you... How much have you accumulated? What kind, of, what kind of house do you have? What kind of car do you drive? You know, she won't have that. Secondly, she will not have accomplished anything. Taylor has kept her alive for nine months, and now we'll do all the part that births her and gets her out. She's accomplished nothing. That's how we determine value in our culture. What have you accomplished with your life? What kind of job do you have? What have you achieved? And third, and I will get some pushback here on this from you ladies in the house, but honestly, she's not going to be that attractive. I mean, really, she's going to be a little wrinkly. She's going to be a little kind of off color. And uh, by worldly standards, not that attractive. But that's how we determine value in our culture, right? Like, how attractive are you? How attractive are you? What have you accumulated? What have you accomplished? This little baby will have done none of those things. But to Austin and Taylor, she will be the most valuable thing in the world. Why? Because she's theirs. And you have to understand that that's how God looks at you. You are his child. And because you are his, you are amazingly valuable, and he will pursue you anywhere. Now, Jose said all of that last week, but I just wanted to say it again because I like that one a lot. But I did pick a different parable. He sent me a list. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to go through... Honestly, I'm not even sure it's a parable. It's only a few sentences. It feels more like a metaphor, but it was on the list, so we're going with it, all right, because I like it. It's about a plank that's in our own eye and a speck that's in the eye of somebody else in the, the way that we go about addressing that, but it's pretty interesting. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of that bigger sermon that Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, in the sermon, I don't know if you understand this, but just because the chapter ends doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus took a break in the sermon. It wasn't like he was teaching and all of a sudden he's like, all right, into the third quarter, everybody grab some Gatorade and some orange slices, come back and we'll pick up again in chapter seven. That wasn't how it worked. He was just teaching straight through. So what was happening at the end of chapter six actually gives us context for this early chapter seven. And at the end of chapter six, Jesus is saying to the people that he's teaching, he's like, hey, you guys worry about a lot of stuff that you don't need to, and that leads to anxiety in your life. The first thing you tend to worry about is provision, like what am I going to eat, and what am I going to wear, and where am I going to live? And that stuff is something I don't need you to worry about, because I will take care of that. That's what Jesus is saying to his people. God will take, he takes care of the birds, he, take, he will take care of you. So don't worry about provision. The second thing he says that you worry about at the very end of chapter six is you worry about tomorrow. You worry about the future. And we can get caught doing that. You know, what's going to happen? Do I have enough money to retire? Am I going to make it? What's going our country going to look like in four years? We can worry about the future. And he's saying to his, the people listening, don't worry about that. That's the second thing. And then he moves into chapter seven. And the reason I'm telling you all that is because in context, it helps us 
to interpret what he's saying here. In the early chapter 7, he's saying, the third thing I don't want you to worry so much about is what's going on with everybody around you. You spend so much time in comparison. You spend so much time either thinking you don't live up or look up to the people around you, or you know what, they're screwing up so bad, I need to judge them. And either one of those things creates worry and anxiety in your life that I don't want you to have to live with. So that's the context for where we are in Matthew chapter 7. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't know if you've ever lived in comparison or judgment of others. If you haven't, then thankfully, you're welcome to go grab your kids and head on um, because you've accomplished this. But if maybe somehow you have, or you know somebody close to you that has that you could pass this lesson along to, then hang with me. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. All right, so the very first thing that he says is do not judge in verse 1, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, a lot of times when I read these and I think about Jesus' teaching, my image of Jesus is this shepherd that's gentle, and he's kind of just nicely, kind of kindly speaking to me. The reason I read the message translation is because Eugene Peterson actually took the time to look at the verbs and the way that they were used to see kind of the energy behind what Jesus was teaching in the moment when he was teaching it. So I want you to look at this same passage in the message version because you see he was actually not being very gentle. He was actually being pretty harsh and direct with the people when he said it this way. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. The critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth cloth to your neighbor. He's being pretty strong with us here, you guys. He's saying, look, you guys need to quit looking around in judgment and condemnation of the people around you while there are things in your own life that you need to be attending to. And I know that this has application for me today because I want to talk to you about what does it look like to really relate well to the people around us? What are the things that we need to do to look at people the way Jesus looks at them instead of with a condemning spirit and a judgmental attitude like we tend to do. Tim Keller passed away about a week and a half ago, I guess, but I love a lot of the things he said. He's a pastor in New York City. He said this, though, the gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's that thing from last week. Do we understand how valuable we are in Jesus, God's pursuit of us? This leads, if we understand that, this leads us to this week's message. This leads us to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Man, if we could grasp the fullness of what he's saying there, it would change the posture of the way we look at ourselves and the way that we look at the people around us. So let's go through some tangible steps in this passage. The very first thing that I think it teaches about relating to others is that we need to be very slow to judge. 
We need to be very slow to judge. In Romans, we were studying that last as a church, and we went through, and there was a place in Romans where Jose described the difference between having judgment, which is discernment and necessary and important, and passing judgment, which is condemnation. And there is a distinction. There's even a distinction in the biblical words that are used around both of those things. We are asked and need to have discernment. We need to have the kind of judgment that discerns safe people to be with, safe places to be, safe relationships to be in. But we need to leave the judging, condemning discernment. I mean, that, that we need to leave to the Lord. It says here in a couple of important verses that just reiterate what he's saying in the early chapter seven. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor in James? And then in Romans who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master servant stand or fall? And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. The point is there is a judge and there is judgment and there is a place for that. But we don't need to start with that. We got to start somewhere very different. The reality is we're just not good judges. That's why God doesn't want us doing it. There's a thing social psychologists use called the fundamental attribution error. You may ever heard of that or the fundamental attribution bias. Attribution is what is it that you think causes a behavior? And the fundamental bias says this. As humans, when we look at somebody else and their failure, we tend to relate it to something internal inside them. So, oh, that person was late. You know why they were late? Because they were lazy, because they're irresponsible, because they don't understand the value of showing up and caring for the people around them. However, when we're late, we tend to look at external circumstances. Well, you know, my alarm had a big issue, and then there was a lot of traffic. I didn't expect that traffic. And then Starbucks, the line was really long, but I needed that coffee for the meeting. So you understand the distinction there? Like when we judge ourselves, we tend to find excuses on the outside. But when we judge others, we tend to assume that there's some internal flaw inside of them causing that. And that's true. That's kind of how we go at it. As a result, God says, you know what? The very first thing, if you want to relate to others, is why don't you set judgment aside? Leave that to me. Let me handle that. So what does he say to do next? Well, he gets into a couple of things. The first thing in verse 3 says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And then he talks about how can you say to your brother, you know, remove that. I think the second thing is critical, self-awareness. I mean, I'm just growing in my, in my understanding as a dad, how to be a good dad, how to be a good parent. And I really believe that self-awareness is one of the traits I want my kids to have to succeed in the world. I think the people that, out there that have self-awareness have a good chance in our culture today, and the people that lack it are in significant trouble. What is self-awareness? Well, self-awareness is the ability to accurately evaluate yourself and understand what's going on inside of you. And unfortunately, it's severely lacking in a lot of folks today. We were interviewing a candidate for a position on a board that I was in, and we get to ask some questions of them. And so I ask them, and it's a, it's a bit of a trick question, right? When I say, hey, uh, how self-aware on a scale of one to 10 would you say you are? I mean, that's kind of a trick question. Like, it's like, well, how do you answer that? But the guy did a great job. He said, well, obviously that would be tough for me to answer but I can tell you what I do to try to increase my self-awareness. I have people in my life that I ask to hold me accountable and to speak into me. And, uh, you know, I pray for the Lord to give me 
you know, discernment into why I do some of the things that I do. I'm like, okay, that's really good. That's a good quality to have. I'm telling you, this is a simple aside. I'm just a pastor. I don't hire for a living. But if you do interview a lot of people, I would tell you, try to find out if they have self-awareness. Because if people have self-awareness, you can train them to do almost anything. But if people lack self-awareness, you're in trouble. That uh, verse on the screen, Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's saying accurately evaluate what's going on inside of you. Don't let the word sober throw you off. It's not saying, hey, you know what? Get, go have some drinks with your buddies, and then y'all talk about how bad your wives are and accurately judge that. No, or how good a husband, you're a good husband. You know, you're a good husband. No, they're wrong. You're right. You know, don't do that. That's not what it's saying. It's basically just saying that we need to be very sober-minded and accurate in how we evaluate ourselves. And you guys, we all have blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. They're stuff that we just can't see. A few years ago, Christina and I went to marriage counseling, and the counselor said, okay, Sean, tell me how you handle traumatic, and we've been working for a while with this counselor and really discerning, trust, tell, tell, us, tell me how you handle traumatic things that happen in your family. I'm like, oh, finally, thank you. I'm good at this one. This one I'm good at. <laughs> Let me tell you what I do. Like, I listen to what's going on, and then I kind of give a recap summary, and then I kind of give a motivational charge, and I give them a plan, and, and we figure out how we're going to get past whatever's going on together as a family. And I looked to the counselor, I said, you're feel free to use that with your other clients if you want, right? <laughs> You're welcome to, or if you want to write it in a chapter in a book, probably don't quote, don't say Sean Stover, you know, that'd be for the humility's sake, maybe say Pastor Sean from Wembley so I can just show my <laughs> friends that I was the one that came up with that plan for handling traumatic circumstances in your family. And, and the counselor, he looked at me, discerning guy, and he says, you know what, I, I, I probably will use that with my, I said, I thought you would. He said, as an example of what not to do. <laughs> And I was like, what? No, I've been doing that for 20 years in my family. That's what I do. I show up. I'm optimistic. I, I get us through the crisis. I create a plan to get to the other side. And he said, you know, in the midst of all of that, you totally dishonor what's going on in the heart of the people around you, your wife and your kids. You don't give them a chance to kind of grieve where they are. You don't uh, comfort them. You miss that opportunity completely, and it creates, creates disconnection. I said, oh. I don't think so, but I don't think that's what's happened at all. I mean, I'm really good at this. And I thought, well, I got Christina here, thankfully. She's lived with me for 20 years. She's going to back me up on this one. And I said, go ahead, babe. Tell them how good my plan works, you know. And she said, yeah, yeah, that counselor's right, babe. That is exactly what you do. I feel devalued uh, when you do that, and, and I don't feel comforted or connected to you at all. I thought, what in the, it's going on in this, I'm paying this guy, and y'all are colluding here, and... I pulled out some scripture. I'm like, no, I'm like that shepherd that comes when there's a crisis and I'm rescuing everybody. And the counselor's like, no, you're another sheep in the pasture and a wolf is chewing off the leg of somebody in your family. And you're like, hey, you still got three legs. This is going to be great. That's not helping anybody. I'm like, what is happening? I didn't, I was blowing it, man. I blew it for 20 something years. My dad did the same thing. He was optimistic no matter what was going on. I was optimistic. I thought, I'm doing this. Man, I was blowing it. I was hurting my family. And I was totally unaware that that was going on. 
We need to find avenues to increase our self-awareness. You can journal. If you can write down what's kind of, keep a track and start seeing if patterns emerge. You can find a counselor or a trusted friend that would speak into your life. You can ask. Be brave enough to ask people in your life for feedback. And then when they give it, thank them for the feedback. Don't discount what they're saying or negate what they're, or argue what they're saying. Just listen. You know, pay attention to what you do and emo your emotional response to difficult things or kind of consistent emotional reactions, but increase your self-awareness because what that increased self-awareness does is it, man, it opens the door to the next three things that we need to do to really relate well to. And they're all in, in Matthew 7, verse 5. It starts out by saying, you, you hypocrite, because here's what it is. The lack of self-awareness leads to you being a hypocrite. The presence of self-awareness leads to humility. Do you want to approach people with humility or do you want to approach people as a hypocrite? Big difference. So the third thing that you get to do, it says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. This is the idea of personal responsibility. If you want to get better at relationships, take personal responsibility. Stop looking around and blaming everybody else for what's going on or where you're at and own your stuff. You know what? I blew it. I, I, I did. And, and, and I got to figure out how to fix that. Galatians 6, 4, and 5 says this. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. You have a load to carry. Quit handing it off to somebody else and trying to blame them for why you're acting or doing the very things that you're doing. Spend time with the Lord and pause and say, hey, what do I need to do to get better here. I got a bunch of kids, so I'm learning lessons from them all the time. I got Cade and Kendall over there. They're getting married in October. And uh, man, Cade, I love this dude, but he is like his mom and um, he's going to bring some of that into their marriage. And uh, he is doing an amazing job at growing in self-awareness. Um, Man, I love when he comes in to me. He's like, you're not going to believe what happened with Kendall and I. And he talks about it for a few minutes. And then I'm like, yeah. And what do you, he's like, yeah, I know. I showed up again and I got too passionate in the conversation. I didn't stay calm. He starts to take responsibility. Y'all, that's what we've got to do. The, the, I love that, that Scott and Farrah are with this weekend to remember. Go by the table out there. Go to the weekend to remember. Work on your marriage. One of the things that they will tell you at that weekend to remember is that marriage is not a 50-50 deal. It's not. Marriage is a 100-100 deal. You put 100% in, and if your spouse, you, you can't control how much they put in. Hopefully, they put 100% in too. But whether they do or don't, you can stand before the Lord and say, I gave it everything I got. That's what personal responsibility looks like. Um, the next thing that personal responsibility allows you to do. So if you do these things, I'm going to set judgment aside. I'm going to be self-aware of what's going on. I'm going to take responsibility for my own stuff. Then it frees you up to do the next thing it says in here, which is, then you will see clearly. Now that's different because we don't usually see clearly. It's ironic that I put those glasses on and take them off as I say, we don't usually see clearly. We don't usually see clearly, y'all. We see through judgmental eyes. We see through, you know, blame and, and all the other things, shame and guilt in our life. But this says if we do the path of not judge, self-aware, personal responsibility, we are able to see clearly. Jesus saw 
clearly. This is one example. Five different times in Scripture, it says the phrase, Jesus saw and had compassion. Anytime he saw, compassion was the natural thing that, he, that happened next. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were troubled and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I hope you understand that the opposite of judgment is compassion. Instead of seeing with judgment, now all of a sudden we're seeing with compassion. And that changes everything. There's a fascinating story to me where Jesus heals a, a blind man. It's in Mark. Uh, let's see if I can find it here real quick for you guys. Um, yeah, here it is. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. They came to this Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people, and they look like trees walking around. So this is what happens. Imagine, I don't know, weird scenario. This guy's been blind all his life. People like this Jesus guy can help you. He gets in front of Jesus. Thank goodness I'm in front of Jesus. Jesus spits on him. It's like, really, this is what I came for? I'm getting spit on right now. But he opens his eyes and he can kind of see. And he sees, he says, what do you see? So I see people, but they look like trees. Now, that's, that's an odd phrase to say, right? Like, where is he going with that? I don't really know. But it's interesting what happens next. It says, so Jesus, the next verse is, Jesus touched him again. He says, open your eyes now. He opened his eyes and he could see clearly. Same verse that's here, the same phrase that's used here in 7, 5. The second time he could see clearly. I don't think Jesus messed up the first time. I guess that's one interpretation, but I don't, I don't see him messing up. I just think the first time he healed him and he opened his eyes and he saw just like all of us see. Kind of blurry. He just saw people. He's like, yeah, they're kind of, they just described them like you would a tree. Well, that, that's a tall guy over there, and there's the stubbier guy over there, or whatever. And uh, Jesus said, you know what? I'm gonna, you're being honest. I'm just going to touch you again and let you see the way I see. What if we allowed that to happen? What if we allowed ourselves to see the way Jesus sees? How would that change the way we relate to the people around us? Because I believe what that would do is open the door to understanding and compassion so that we could then do the last thing that we need to do, which is we do need to take action sometimes. The last part of verse five says, once you see clearly, remove the speck from your brother's eye. Whoa, we came full circle. I don't know if you ever realized that, but at the end of that little parable, it actually says, get the speck out of their eye. Did you, did you know, I've read that many, many times. And all I really thought about was the plank in my own that I needed to be doing something with. But it actually says at the end, no, now that you can see clearly, you do need to remove that speck from your brother. There, there are some things we need to do for the people around us, and there are some ways to come alongside them. The first important way to take action, I think, is to show mercy. People just need mercy. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually says that. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is an important thing, and I think it's running lower and lower in our culture. We don't have much mercy for the people around us, but if we do the steps, set judgment aside, self-aware, take personal responsibility, see clearly, all of a sudden mercy comes, right? And then this verse, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, then what we get to do is come alongside each other and carry one another's burdens. That's pretty cool. 
We got hurting brothers and sisters and people around us, and we can actually help carry their burdens. Another uh, place I was reading, talking about that very verse in Galatians says this, a mark of the discipleship community. So this is like our community groups is the responsibility that disciples have to help each other remove the speck of sin from each other's lives. But it must come from a humble and self-examined life that has removed the plank of self-righteous judgment. Then restoration can occur with the right attitude. After self-evaluation takes place, relationships are based on redemptive empathy rather than condemning detachment. That's what we want community to look like. It's what we want our church to look like. A place where based on the grace and blessing we've received, we want to be able to care for the people around us, show mercy, carry their burdens. And then lastly, on the screen there, it talks about one of my favorite passages, and that's John chapter 1, verses 14 and verse 17 up there. It says the same thing in both, that Jesus was grace and truth. If we're really going to come alongside the people around us, we need to do it with grace and truth. And if you've heard me teach, you've maybe heard me talk about this concept. A lot of us lean on the truth side. You know, we want to bring truth and we want to just let them know. We want to hammer them with that truth. And truth without grace is just another form of judgment. But there's a lot of us out there that, are, that we kind of lean on the grace side. You know, we're just going to accept. We're just going to love. We're going to, we're going to show grace. Grace without truth is unconditional acceptance, and it's just as dangerous. It's the combination of the two that really creates love. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be a people that live life that way. See, I think it really, if we look at those five, they can put all five of those back on the screen there, and you can kind of just take a look and see, Lord, are there any of these steps that I've been missing? Is there any place I've been fast forwarding past a couple of these to get to the last ones? Or maybe I'm really good at the first couple, but I've paused, you know, in my own self-awareness and my own responsibility, and I haven't taken the bold step to really get out there and see the people around me and care for them well. Only you can know where you are, but start somewhere and do something different. See, the reality is you're never going to be qualified to condemn someone else. But through the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you will be compelled to love others with grace and truth. I pray we would be a people who does that. Let's pray together. Lord, it's awesome to be able to hear these stories that you tell, these metaphors that you give, even when you use hyperbole like this. Lord, it still it just it helps us to understand just how off track we can get. And I can be a person, Lord, that is so easily enticed to look at the people around me and what they're doing or where they're falling short and miss the chance to look in the mirror and understand what I could do differently. I know we all can be that way, Lord. So together we ask you to show us. Show us where we need to improve, where we need to grow closer to you. If we need to start a relationship with you or grow in our relationship with you, help us to know how to do that so that we could then be your ambassadors to really see clearly with compassion, love others with grace and truth. I thank you, Lord, that this model laid out here is what works so well in recovery communities where people are open and honest and aware of themselves and then love each other. Lord, we want to be that kind of community for people that are hurting. 
We don't want to see people as good or bad or right or wrong. We want to understand like you do, that people are just somewhere on a scale of healthy to unhealthy. And we want to be a part of that healing process. Show us how, Lord, to receive from you and share with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.